Well, we have officially entered into the Advent season, haven't we? And it is good to see some of our college students returning home. Tyler, are you responsible for yesterday? Was that you cheering for Alabama yesterday that brought that on? Okay. There are some people that are happy about that, I know. As we enter into this season and this time, uh, it is a time that we take up an offering for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And uh, 100% of the funds that we take up are given directly to the International Mission Board. Uh, I had a conversation with someone a couple of weeks ago, and they said, well, you know, I don't really agree with everything that the Southern Baptist Convention is into right now, and so I think I'm going to just uh, not give any money to Lottie Moon this year. And I thought, hmm, that's a great way of punishing them. Make sure the gospel doesn't get out to the unreached people. That's a poor way of trying to voice your opinion right now. There are better ways to be able to express how you feel about things. And so I want to encourage you, uh, if it's within your heart that the Lord is leading you to have confidence that you can support the International Mission Board. We heard last year uh, one of the uh, strategic coordinators come and tell us that that they are doing things the way the scriptures are are telling us that we should be able to do. And so I want you to, to pray sincerely about how the Lord is leading you in order to give. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would prepare our hearts for this Advent season. That, Lord, the most important thing that we can think of during this time is your coming into the world. And because of that, that is good news. It is good news that needs to get out to the farthest reaches of this world. And we pray, Lord, that you would work in us in such a way that, Lord, we would want to continue that divine mission of proclaiming Jesus Christ, that he has come, that he has come to save sinners from their uh, sins. And so, Lord, we pray that in the waiting, as we anticipate your return again, that you would build our faith, Lord, that you would grant us confidence in the message, and that, Lord, we would keep our eyes always looking forward. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Well, with Christmas upon us, I always have to restrain the ladies in my household to wait until after Thanksgiving until we celebrate the season. It's kind of like holding back hound dogs before they get ready to go on the hunt sometimes. And so I have to say, no, let's wait till Thanksgiving is over with, and then we can begin to celebrate. And yet I still hear Christmas music being played behind closed doors. Well, now that Thanksgiving is over, it seems appropriate to begin directing our hearts towards the incarnation of Jesus. But as we transition from our time in Matthew's gospel to the topic of Advent, it would appear that the Lord has us in a special place to continue to explore this concept of weak faith versus strong faith that we have seen in Matthew chapter 17. When we had Dr. Timothy Larson recently for our history conference on Christmas, he made a statement that struck a chord with me. He said that when Advent was first celebrated within the church, its original intention was to draw attention to Christ's second coming. That the experience of waiting for the first coming of Christ should be an example that builds our present faith as we await his second coming. That's resonated with me as I've been contemplating this relationship between faith and waiting. That is how faith should be manifesting the fruit of patience within us. And it seems to go hand in hand with what we've seen in Matthew 17. 
After all, we, we saw two examples of this type of faith within that narrative. In verses 14 through 21 of Matthew 17, we saw a father bring forward his demon-oppressed son to the disciples. We learn from Mark's account of that story that his son had this demon ever since childhood. Most likely prior to learning about Jesus, this dad was thinking, this is the way it's always going to be. My son will always be terrorized by this demon. My family will never escape the vigilance of looking after him, of removing him from the danger that the demon continues to put him in. And then he hears about Jesus and his disciples, that they can cast out demons. Dare he have hope in this moment? This hope moves him to find the disciples while Jesus is still on the Mount of Transfiguration. And the disciples fail at their attempt, and, and they think they cannot cast out this unclean spirit. And the father sees Jesus approaching, and he begs that he personally do something about it. And Jesus does. He casts out the demon. This father was in an immediate crisis. His hopes worked up, and he was wondering, would his faith fail him in this moment? In Mark chapter 9, he cries out to Jesus, I believe Help my unbelief. The father of the boy refused to give up in this crisis, even though he had a wavering faith. From Matthew's perspective, we learn that it was a weak faith that prevented the disciples from casting out the unclean spirit. We saw from Matthew 10, they had explicitly been given this authority, though it appears they gave up upon their first try. We learn again from Mark 9 that they did not pray prior to casting out the demon. In Matthew, Jesus attributes this to their small faith. In the immediate crisis, they gave up rather than making use of the means of faith like prayer. And then immediately after this episode in Matthew 17, in contrast to this father and the disciples, we see Jesus demonstrate amazing long-term faith. He tells the disciples precisely what will happen to him as he begins to make his way to Jerusalem. He reveals to them that he will be given over to men. And previously, he predicted that when this happened, he would suffer at their hands. And by these same men, he would also be put to death. But he also prophesied that he would be raised from the dead on the third day. Jesus knew what he was getting into when he was doing the Father's will. By taking this long-term, forward-looking view of the resurrection, each step of this path demonstrated remarkable faith and patience as he approaches the cross. And you may wonder, well, what was the state of the disciples' faith during Jesus' suffering and death? Well, the answer can be summed up in this. Despite being told that Jesus would be raised from the dead in three days, not a single one of them is camping outside the tomb. They were all hiding. They were not waiting in expectation. While Jesus demonstrated his strong faith, they continued to display a weak faith, which shows just how dependent they must be on Jesus accomplishing his full work on their behalf. So this idea of playing the long game, of, of being patient in faithful expectation seems an appropriate place for us to begin Advent as we consider how the Old Testament saints waited in faithful expectation of Jesus' first coming to accomplish his work on the cross. And a proper synopsis of this long waiting is found in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, if you will, please turn back there with me. You're going to need to lay eyes on this chapter. This is found on page 1007 of your pew Bible. We have in this passage three helpful guideposts here. 
In sum, we have a definition of faith followed by demonstrations of faith, and it concludes with the basis of faith. So you have the definition of faith, the demonstrations of faith, and the basis of faith. Now what I hope to do in the next 30 minutes is to show the connection between hope and conviction, between belief and waiting, between faith and patience and perseverance. And then in the weeks ahead, I want us to consider how we are to exercise our faith as we await our Lord's second coming, as we reflect back upon his first coming. In our own self-centered, get-it-done-now kind of world, we find it hard to comprehend that God's timing is absolutely perfect. But it is. And each of us are called to wait on the Lord in some area of our lives, even if it's waiting for his return. But as the Lord calls us to exercise patience, he is essentially building up our faith in such moments. So let's begin with this classic definition of faith from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. The inspired writer of this work writes, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. This classic definition is marvelous, one that can only come from the Holy Spirit. The definition is in two clauses here, assurance of things hoped, hoped for, and conviction of things not seen. Now, most translations portray this verse as a subjective experience rather than an objective experience. And usually that's due to translating the Greek word hypostasis as assurance. Now, using assurance here is not necessarily a bad translation. In fact, I think it's a good one. But the writer of Hebrews opens up the book, his entire book, speaking about Jesus being, quote, the exact imprint of God's nature. The word translated there as nature is this same Greek word, hypostasis. Now, I'm going to say a little bit more about that later in just a bit. But but for now, I think this is a reference here going back to the author's first thought of pointing towards Jesus Christ. Other translations attempt to capture this idea that faith is not just a feeling, but it is actually based upon something concrete. For example, the New King James translates assurance of things as the substance of things, or the old definition of the reality of things. The root word of hypostasis in the Greek conveys the idea of setting support underneath it. Setting support underneath it. So if we take the full force of what this phrase conveys, faith is not just a subjective experience, it's also an objective experience as well. Faith has a reasonable basis on which to have this assurance which is coupled with this word hope. This assurance, this substance, allows the person who is exercising faith to have hope. Now, we've seen this word hope many times in our studies. I've I've mentioned that the Greek word elpis, that's translated here as hope, is a hope with reasonable expectation to believe. There is a firm basis for this type of hope. It's not a synonym for wish like we might use in English. I hope I win the lottery, or I hope you like the dinner that I made you. Let me provide you an illustration of the type of hope that I'm speaking about. I can tell you right now, I hope that I get home from church. Now that might convey the idea that there is a possibility that I won't. Instead, I am more likely to say I have hope that I will get home today. 
And the reason for my hope is that I drove my truck here. It got me here without any problems. When I arrived, I saw that I had a full tank of gas. There were no warning lights that were blinking and going off on my dashboard. I parked my car, I locked it, and with a sheriff's deputy watching things, I doubt that someone's going to steal it in the time that I'm in here. I expect it to be sitting there after church. Based upon the evidence, I have reasonable expectation that when I get ready to leave, my truck will be waiting for me and capable of getting me home without problem. The substance of what I have seen or the assurance of what I have experienced leads me to have hope that I will get home today. Not that I might, but that I have reasonable evidence that I will. Now, the second clause is similar. Faith is conviction of things unseen. The Greek word translated as conviction conveys the idea of proof or a reproof. It can be translated as compelling evidence, like the same word we would use in legal cases. It is proof that moves us to believe and to act on the things that are unseen. Now, that seems and sounds illogical to some people. Why would you believe in something you can't see? But we do this more often than we think. I breathe even though I can't see oxygen. I am not going to stop breathing until oxygen somehow presents itself in a way that I can see. I see the effects of wind, but I can't see the wind itself. As much as I would like to disbelieve that wind exists, I will still have to rake the leaves in my yard that are blown into it from my neighbor's trees. The other day, I walked away from a restaurant table leaving cash to pay for my dinner. I am told that the dollar bills are backed by the currency of the United States government. Now, I've never laid eyes on it before, but supposedly they have material resources that represents the value of the bills that I left. As much as I would like to leave my waitress my gum wrapper or an old newspaper, I'm still going to pay my bills with paper that represents something that I have never seen. Why? Because I have conviction or proof to act upon what I have seen or experienced or what I have not seen or experienced. So by definition, faith must be based in an objective reality. Otherwise, it's just wishful thinking. And this is what the author to the Hebrews has been dealing with all along in this manuscript from chapters 1 through chapter 10. From the very beginning, he has been arguing for the superiority of Jesus Christ over any Jewish teachings or traditions that came before him. That everything that God revealed to his covenant people prior to this moment in time was directed to the reality of Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. It all pointed to the incarnation of this baby whose birth we celebrate during this season. He writes in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact 
imprint of his nature. Here's our word, hypostasis, implying that Jesus is the same essence, the same substance as God the Father, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When Jesus completed his work, and he ascended into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father, the place of prominence, the place of intercession, everything needed for restitution to God for sin and to be adopted into God's family was done. It was complete. There is no more need for anything else. All one needs is to have faith in who Jesus is and what he has done on their behalf. In the next few chapters, he's going to say that Jesus is superior to any angel or spiritual being. He is superior to Moses and the law. Jesus is superior to the high priest. He is greater than the temple where the sacrifices are made. In fact, Jesus is greater than any sacrifice that's been made because his perfect sacrifice is sufficient to atone for sin for all time. So our author keeps offering here proof after proof after proof that a Jewish Christian may have absolute faith in Jesus. It gets to the point, you may wonder, well, why would he even question it? Well, that's the purpose of this letter. Christians were starting to be persecuted all across the Roman Empire. Some Jewish Christians thought, well, they had a way out of this. They thought, well, instead of following Jesus, I'll just go back to the old ways of Moses and I'll be safe. After all, Judaism was how Christianity began. I'll just leave out the Christian part. And the writer is saying that kind of thinking is futile. It's irrelevant. Now that Jesus has come, which was the fulfillment of all the law, the fulfillment of all the prophecies, the the fulfillment of all the sacrifices, the fulfillment of the promises made to God's people, all of those things in the past are worthless unless you're demonstrating by faith that they point to Jesus, the Messiah, the, the supreme prophet, priest, king, the son of the living God. This is what God was leading his people toward from the very beginning. It would be like you following a map to the Grand Canyon, and then once you arrive, you refuse to look at it. Instead, you turn back around, and you go back to where you started the trip, and you keep repeating the process all over again. The writer to the Hebrews is demonstrating, if you return to the old ways, then you've missed the point. You're doomed concerning your salvation. You're lost. You are essentially putting your faith in something else like your own efforts at keeping the law. You're still under condemnation because your faith is not in Jesus but in the traditions that came before it. And this is why he writes in the last verse of chapter 10 just before our definition of faith here, but we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and persevere or preserve their souls. And in case they're wondering, did the patriarchs not know this? Did people like Moses and David not know that faith must be in Christ? Well, he says here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 2, that this faith of what was to come in Christ is how the Old Testament saints received their commendation. The word commendation in the Greek is the same word that we get the term martyr. Now, contrary to popular belief, martyr does not mean to die for but rather it means to witness or to testify. People might be killed for what they believe, but their death is due to what they were standing up for or what they were testifying to about their beliefs. 
The same root word is translated as witnesses in chapter 12, verse 1. Here in chapter 11, verse 2, God is the one that's giving testimony. He is the one commending the saints of old for their faith. And without going into each of these names listed, we can see that all of them demonstrated faith in the promises of God. Each was assured of something better that was to come, something better that came beyond their lifetime. Each acted on the things not seen. Abraham left home and family and believed that God would provide something better. We might even say that Sarah demonstrated a weak faith, but it was still a faith in something better to come, though it was mishandled. She believed so strongly that Abraham needed an heir to fulfill the promise. She was impatient, and she offered her servant Hagar to her husband. But we're told in verse 11, despite such actions, God was still faithful to her despite her weak faith in that moment. The summary of this faith is found in verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The Old Testament saints received their inheritance based upon the faith of what God would do through his promises. But it's interesting to note that twice in this hall of faith, as it's called, one primary reason they're commended for their faith is that they believe, though they never held or touched the fruition of their faith. They never saw nor heard the resurrected Jesus. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Some of these saints went through excruciating pain. They went through hardships. They became exiles. They were tortured. They were imprisoned, some sawn in two. They were destitute. And our author states at verse 39, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They didn't see Jesus. They didn't see his death nor his glorious resurrection, but God commends their persevering faith in the promises that were made to them. And verse 40 provides us of how we presently endure in faith. He states, since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This better for us is the example of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to return to that in just a moment. But the author of Hebrews holds to a corporate view here. It's not just that these Old Testament saints provided examples for us from their past experiences, but they're also counting on us, New Testament people, to take full example of their example, or full advantage of their example, sorry, that we would continue in faith, continuing to have belief in something better, that we would relish in the fulfilled promise of Christ until he comes again. So he continues just here briefly into chapter 12. Therefore, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, get this, those Old Testament saints whom God commended are now commending us. They're cheering us on to persevere in faith just as they did. What do they want us to do? Well, it can be summed up into two actions. Continue to work in our sanctification and to look forward. Let us 
lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. That's the sanctification piece. In order to do what? Why are we doing this? And let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. And here's the looking forward part. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The basis of our faith is what Jesus has already done. He sets the example for us. He is the ultimate example of faith. He entered into this sin-sick world as a helpless baby. He entered in a sin-sick environment, and he did not commit any sin. As Matthew 16 and 17 has taught us, he made his way to the cross to pay the sin debt owed to a holy God despite the suffering. How did he do this? How did he wait and and endure the shame and proceed on the path? The writer tells us that he looked past the trials that are set before him. He considered, he intentionally made his goal the joy that awaited him on the other end of it. Jesus is now through the trial. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is interceding for all the saints. He is commending Abraham, Sarah, Moses, and David, all of the Old Testament saints. He is testifying to their faith. He is right now before the throne of God saying, Abraham, mine. Sarah, mine. Moses, mine. David, mine. Just as he did with all these saints that are lined up on the window seals of our church right now. He is saying, George, mine. Neil, mine. Philip, mine. Jesse, mine. Just as it's going to be when it's your turn to arrive at that final destination, Jesus is going to be testifying to you. He's going to be saying, Philip, mine. Bo, mine. Nicole, mine. Brian, mine. Why? Because he paid the sin debt. He suffered through it all for the joy that was set before him, and he is now telling his saints, enter into my kingdom of joy. His timing is perfect. And in the midst of it, he builds our faith in that. So these saints of old who are in heaven, they're cheering right now. They see your weakness, and they see the trials that you're enduring. They understand the pain that you've experienced, and they're shouting, keep on. Don't stop. You keep going. Compared to eternity, the finish line is so close to you. And what a prize that awaits you right now. The very thing that we put our faith in, that place is real. It's real, and it is glorious because Jesus is there. For you see, while the faith that these these saints displayed is commendable, it achieved nothing for us individually. They would be the first to tell you, yes, we, we had faith, but we are weak examples of faith. We achieved nothing. We were dependent upon what would be done for us by Jesus. The real example of faith is Jesus, the one that they were looking forward to meeting the one whom their expectations were based, the basis of their faith. And now that he's come into this first advent, they want us to take full advantage of looking to Jesus and his resurrection as we await his second. So now, we wait. 
we endure. I'm going to tell you, folks, the world is not any better. It's not. There's still injustice. There is still confusion over morality. There's still violence. There is still heartache and betrayal. And there is still death. Nothing I can do or preach will fix any of that because our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is in Jesus and what he has done to assure us of what is to come. I was listening to a sermon by John Onichuk this past week. He made a significant statement, just really grabbed me. He said, the three most powerful words of the English language are, I give up. I give up. The person who gives up has lost hope. Drug addicts continue in their addictions because they have given up hope. People commit suicide because they have given up hope. We make sinful choices in our desperation because we have given up hope. But a more powerful statement can be made by adding one word to those three. I almost gave up. I almost gave up. That sentence implies hope. It implies that when you were ready to throw in the towel, something or someone intervened to change your situation from one of despair to one of hope. I've seen this in my personal battle with sin. There are times that I have that besetting sin that just seems to hang in there, hang in there, and I want to say, I give up until the Lord intervenes with his Holy Spirit and his word and I can make it into a testimony. I almost gave up. Asaph testified, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. David testified in Psalm 119, all your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forgotten your, for, uh, your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Paul testified, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Lord willing, in in the days ahead, we're going to continue to look at this expectation of the Savior's first advent in order to give us patience and hope for a second. But for now, as you endure, as you wait, don't Give up. Turn your despair into a testimony of, (laughs) I almost gave up. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Look ahead to him, sitting in glory beside the Father, saying, you are mine. Come and enter into my joy forevermore. Join me in prayer. 
Oh, Lord, we thank you that our faith is not in ourselves because we are weak examples of faith. But Lord, you even commend our weak faith. You still hold on to us because our faith is based not in ourselves but in what Christ has done on our behalf. And so, Lord, we pray that as we look around us that we would not declare or think that our hope is based upon our present circumstances. That is what will bring us down. It is not based upon our present circumstances, but it is based upon that baby that was born 2,000 years ago. The ultimate example of faith. That he lived a perfect life on our behalf. That he shed his own blood for our souls. And in doing so, we stand before you not based upon any work that we have done, but on the work that he has already accomplished on our behalf. So, Lord, help us this day to put on gospel armor that, Lord, we would surround ourselves with the truth of this word. And when our faith is weak and it tells us to give up, we pray that you would turn it into a testimony of I almost gave up, but my Lord was faithful to me. Let us, Lord, in this moment, right now, let us look to the example of Jesus, our author and perfecter of our faith. And let us, Lord, run this race to the finish line with great endurance looking at him alone. We pray this in the finished work of Christ. Amen.